Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 16th episode of 2023. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast, and our gold sponsor, Graybar. This morning in Washington, D.C., the Energy and Commerce Committee is holding a legislative hearing, breaking barriers, streamlining permitting to expedite broadband deployment. So if we're really gonna ensure that all Americans are gonna be connected with fiber, we really need to streamline the permitting process to speed deployment. So this is an important activity. And some other relevant legislation on the Hill currently is we have the Network Equipment uh, Transparency Act, the NET Act. And that's uh, a a bill that's been reintroduced by um, some of our senators to strengthen broadband supply chain. And we're working with them on that. There's also a accurate map for Broadband Investment Act. Um, this is uh, a new bill that's uh, looks it's trying to address the FCC mapping issues that are going to be used for used for the bead allocation. And then there's the Community Broadband Act that's being reintroduced. And this bill focuses on ensuring that no state pro- prohibits public providers or public-private partnerships or cooperatives from providing broadband. So basically, as we're trying to get this infrastructure deployed, we want to make sure that you know the providers that are going to serve every member of the community can participate um, in the upcoming um, beef and other funding. Our next regional Fiber Connect workshop will be held on May 16th in Austin, Texas. This is going to be an extremely important event, especially given that Texas may be eligible eligible for up to three billion dollars of beef funding. So you're not going to want to miss this, so please register today as the hotels and workshops sell out quickly. You know, following today's Fire for Breakfast webinar, please join us at 11 a.m. Eastern for a monthly webinar series, Where's the Funding? Today's session will be on partnerships and alternative sources and pathways with Brian Bowe, the Chief Investment Officer at Connect Humanity. You can register at our website at F, um, F- fiberbroadband.org slash webinars. That brings us today's Fire for Breakfast session with Larry Thompson, the CEO of VantagePoint on unlicensed wireless, suitable for closing the digital divide, big question mark on that. Now, last week on Fire for Breakfast, we heard from Mary Jander of Futurum and uh, Debbie Kish, our Vice President of Research at the Fire Broadband Association on Communities Thrive with Fiber Broadband. And they recently completed an economic impact study on a little town in Massachusetts with a population of 40,000 that now has gigabit fiber from their power utility. And fiber is enabling this little community to have access to as many work from home jobs as big cities with over 20 times their population. And it really shows how people can move from these big cities to rural areas with higher quality life and lower cost of living while continuing to have access to high paying jobs. So great study. That brings us today's Fiber Breakfast session with Larry Thompson of Vantage Point on unlicensed wireless. Is it suitable for closing the digital divide? So Larry is the CEO of Vantage Point Solutions, 
a premier engineering and consulting firm serving the fiber broadband industry. A licensed professional engineer, he held several engineering and management positions prior to founding Vantage Point Solutions in 2002. With over 30 years experience of designing fiber-based wireless and satellite networks, he's a trusted and respected expert authority on matters related to telecommunications technology and regulation. As such, he is a two-term member of the FCC's Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, BDAC, and he holds a bachelor degree in physics from William Jewell College and a bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering from the University of Kansas. So welcome, Larry. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them into the Q&A. With that, I'll turn it over to Larry. All right. Thank you, Gary. Um, did you want to mention anything about the white paper? Or should we do that at um, the end? Well, you can go ahead and you can talk about that. Okay, because uh, Fiber Broadband Association and Vantage Point just completed a white paper on the subject that we're going to be talking about today. I know that's available on the Fiber Broadband Association's website for you to gain access, as well as on the Vantage Point website. So you can get it both places. So if you would like to delve a little bit deeper into what we're going to be talking, touching on a little bit this morning, um, that would be a great place to start. Um, Gary's pretty much already gone over this. We've got 450 um, staff members. We do professional engineering and regulatory, uh, financial work, cybersecurity, variety of things. We've got seven offices nationwide. And one thing to keep in mind too is, uh, you know, vantage point here, we do both wireless and wireline engineering. And um, it may sound at times like I'm trying to bash wireless, but the reality is we engineer for both. They both have their place. Um, but you'll see when I get into the presentation here is um, what we're really going to be focused on today is unlicensed wireless. There's been a lot of talk in DC lately about should unlicensed wireless be allowed to access BEAD funds. Um, so if you look at this particular slide, you really need to keep this in mind when we're trying to assess what's the appropriate technologies that we should be using public funds for, what we should be using BEAD funds for. What I did on this slide is I basically just went back to the FCC's Measuring Broadband America report. They've had to do that for the last 12 years by order of Congress, actually. And so every year they come out with a new broadband report where they do surveys and all sorts of tests to figure out what the average speeds are. Now, keep in mind that if you look at the Infrastructure Act, the IIJA, as well as NTIA's NOFO, um, unserved is defined as being less than 25 meg downstream, 3 meg upstream. And the underserved is uh, between that 25.3 and 100 by 20. Um, but if you look at what the speeds have been doing, and in that little red box that I've got circled there, I've just extrapolated out. I took the average growth for the last 12 years that they've been doing the Measuring Broadband America report and extrapolated it out. And you can see that by 2030, and that's not very far away, seven more years, we're going to be up over five gig if the trend continues. Right now, if you look at Ookla, they say the mean speed is around 200 megabits per second downstream. And if you look at the Measuring Broadband America, the median or the average is over 300 meg downstream. So when we're talking about unserved or underserved, you know, 100 by 20, 
that's already behind what the national averages are. And when we're investing in technologies, we want something that's going to obviously be able to last um, a significant amount of time. This is a once in a generational opportunity to invest. And we want some sort of a once in a generation network to be able to serve the customer as well. So if you, we take a look, first of all, of what was initially in the Infrastructure Act that um, obviously NTIA was using to base their, you know, NOFO on, here's a couple of key sentences or paragraphs from the IIJA. And it says that the priority broadband projects, which is the, the broadband projects that are being funded by the B program, um, they need to be able to meet the speed, latency, reliability, consistency, and quality of service and related criteria as it, you know, the assistant secretary shall determine, assistant secretary referring to um, you know, the NTIA. They also say ensure that the network be built by this project can easily scale speeds over time. That's key. That last slide I was showing what those speeds really need to be able to scale to. I'm on panels and um, stuff all the time, and especially with wireless people, it's they are always talking about we're going to plateau. You know, we're not going to need more speed than we have. They've been saying that for 20 years, though. When we started VantagePoint, the slide I was showing at the time that was similar to the one in the previous slide was showing by 2005. And remember, in VantagePoint, we started in 2002. So in 2005, we would need one meg. By 2010, it was eight meg. That was the slide I was showing. I had people come and argue with me all the time saying, there's no way we're going to need a meg. But it's just ridiculous. The thing is, by 2030, when I said we need five and a half gig, it seems ridiculous. But the reality is we're going to have stuff on our network at that time that hasn't been invented yet. Just like in 2002, when I was saying we're going to need one meg by 2005, eight meg by 2010, the stuff hadn't been invented yet. Netflix and YouTube and Facebook, none of that had been invented. So if you look at um, NTIA's NOFO, you know, where they're really essentially interpreting, you know, what Congress had directed them in the Infrastructure Act, one of the things that they do say is that um, for purposes of the bead, the location served exclusively by satellite and this entirely unlicensed spectrum um, do not, they're not considering that adequate broadband says it does not meet the criteria for reliable broadband service and so will be considered unserved. That's been a little bit controversial and you've seen a lot of filings in DC by um, the unlicensed wireless folks. Um, obviously they would want their technology to uh, be included in this. I've done quite a lot of analysis when it comes to the broadband data collection effort, you know, the FCC is involved in. And you can see in this first column here, how many unserved or underserved. And remember the unserved locations is what's going to be used to determine how you're allocating bead funds to each of the states. So right now, if you look at the broadband data collection, the BDC data, there's about 7.8 million locations unserved nationally. There's another 6 million that's underserved, you know, between 25.3 and 100 by 20, for a total of about 13.8 million locations. Now, if we were to include all of the unlicensed wireless um, in those numbers, 
you can see how that would change. Our unserved would drop from 7.8 to 6.2, and we would also have about 6.2 underserved for about 12.4 million total locations. The interesting thing is when we drop by 1.7 million locations unserved nationally, it changes how you um, redistribute bead funds. Um, the big losers in that are going to be the states that have a lot of unlicensed wireless today. You can see with my estimate, Texas is going, and you mentioned earlier, Gary, about your meeting um, coming up in Austin, but Texas would lose about 344,000 unserved locations, which means that they would take a hit of about $900 million in their bead funding if unlicensed wireless were to be allowed in. California would take a hit of about 400 million and Illinois about 288 million. So there would be some states that would be big losers if unlicensed wireless were allowed in you, because some of those unserved locations would either moved up into the underserved, you can actually see there's underserved went from 6 million to 6.2 or to the served. And so you can see it'll redistribute how beat is and there will be some fairly substantial losers. Um, so when we're looking at finding the best broadband for bead, this diagram isn't a scale. You can see that I put the squiggly lines up there that typically when we're deploying fiber to the home nowadays is based on like XGS pond, which is capability of 10 gig and going out 20 miles. That's that purple line at the top. What I'm showing below is what the wireless options are that we would have. Now those ones that you can see that go a gig, those are millimeter wave. And you can see on the bottom axis there, the x-axis, that's distance. They don't go very far. If you're doing point to multi-point millimeter wave, it's a few hundred feet. And I've written papers on that previously as well. That red line though is really what we want to focus on. That red line down below is really fixed wireless in the mid-band because in reality, a millimeter wave is not good for rural areas. The so three things that you need to consider when you're looking for bead is it's gotta be well-suited for rural areas. You gotta provide at least 100 by 20 with low latency, reliability, um, good quality. You know, the things I just mentioned from the um, infrastructure act, and it's gotta be scalable. You've gotta be able to grow as um, user demand continues to increase and we know it will increase. But if you see below, we may be able to get 100 by 20 out a few miles. Remember that what I'm showing there, the 400 meg and tapering off is a single user. So there's multiple users sharing that capacity, but that's the state of the art today. So if you look at the spectrum out there, and again, we're talking about unlicensed wireless in the low band, there's just hardly any spectrum there. This is all to scale. Um, in the high band, you can see that red cross-hatched area there, which is the unlicensed. There's a lot of spectrum for unlicensed use or lightly licensed use in the high band. But like I showed in the previous slide, it only goes a few hundred feet when you're in a point to multi-point mode. So it's really not practical for beat applications, which leads us to the mid band. So the mid band would be the one area that does have some spectrum uh, available for unlicensed use and would go a few miles. So it might actually be able to work for some rural applications. And so really it's the mid band that we wanna be focused on here. So if we think about scalability, um, 
because it does say that end-to-end -end fiber networks, this is what the uh, Bede NOFO says, because they recognize the benefit of fiber. End-to-end -end fiber networks can be upgraded by replacing equipment attached to the ends of the fiber optic facilities, allowing for quick and relatively inexpensive network scaling. That's what I'm showing in this diagram here. Now, if you look on the far left, where we're talking about, you know, relatively uh, slow speeds, you can see I'm 100, you know, meg or so on the far left of this diagram. And then you can see the cost on the X or the Y axis there. Um, maybe we could do in some, in some instances, a lower priced solution if it was fixed wireless than compared to fiber of the home, although not dramatically lower. And there's a lot of variables when we're talking about um, what the cost is to deploy. There's instances where because of the number of towers and the terrain and things like that, the wireless could actually be uh, more expensive than the fiber of the home. But generally speaking, let's say it would be a little less expensive, expensive on the initial CapEx. As we increase our speeds, and you can see as we move to the right on my x-axis there, um, this cost to deploy wireless dramatically increases. A lot of that's due to the fact that we're moving towers a lot closer to our customers. Those towers are fiber fed. We need to put more fiber in. Towers are not cheap either. And as we're moving those closer to the customers, we're putting additional electronics on those towers. It's not too far in the future where the uh, infrastructure for wireless actually becomes more expensive than fiber of the home. We end up having to be in kind of a unique point in time right now where the FCC has said 100 meg is adequate broadband. I certainly believe when we get a couple years down the road, we're gonna look at 100 meg like dial up. Just like now we look at you know one meg, which we thought was adequate back in 2005, very, very slow. Um, as we you know progress in time, we're gonna find out that wireless actually becomes significantly uh, more expensive than just a fiber of the home. So the thing I wanna focus on here is we shouldn't really be looking at this as a single point in time. With B funding, we would wanna make an investment that's not just going to last us for the next couple of years, but hopefully for many years to come. Generally, fiber of the home we assume is gonna last 30 or 40 years or more with just like the uh, NOFO says here, with relatively inexpensive network upgrades, because most of your investment with fiber of the home is in the fiber itself, very cheap electronics. When you look at wireless, a lot of your investment is in electronics, which gets replaced every five to seven years. One thing I wanted to uh, bring out, and this is kind of my last slide here before the Q&A, um, is I have a lot of times when I'm on panels, you know, talking to wireless or, um, it's clients calling saying, hey, have you seen this latest and greatest wireless technology? And um, do I really even need to do fiber? I do a lot of board retreats and things for my clients. And that's a common question. And one thing I will say is they'll send me these spec sheets and stuff. and I'll look at them because on the surface it looks, oh, this looks great. The reality is for wireless, you really need to be able to read the fine print because the way they report broadband and the way a landline uh, provider reports broadband are very different. And you have to understand some of those nuances between the differences to really be able to compare apples to apples. So first of all, one thing that wireless often does, 
is my point number one here is it's total speed versus download speed. So generally when you hear a wireless provider say one gigabit per second, they're taking their download and their upload and summing it together. And so they might have 500 meg symmetrical, 500 by 500, they'll call that one gig. A landline provider wouldn't, they would call that 500 meg. So oftentimes there can be at least a factor of two differential between just how you report the numbers. They're looking at total capacity summing what you're sending to the customer and what the customer is sending back to you. Generally, when they report speed, um, landline providers don't report speed that way. So there's, and I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. I'm just saying there's a difference in how they report it. And if you want to compare apples to apples, you have to take these things into consideration. So number two, they oftentimes measure speed in unrealistic conditions. And so oftentimes you'll say, you'll see them say, I can deliver, you know, a gigabit of service, but you really, really look at what they're doing. It might be to a single customer that's pretty much sitting right underneath the tower, for example, and they might have more spectrum than you have available. They might be operating in, uh, let's say the CBRS band and they're using all you know, 150 megahertz or something, which really isn't practical because you've got other users in that band and you can't get that much spectrum. So you look at what conditions they're testing under, how close are the customers, is it a single customer, is it under realistic scenarios? Because oftentimes what they quote isn't in what it's going to be deployed on. And number three, sometimes they can confuse point to point with point to multipoint. When you're deploying these kinds of broadband services, you're deploying them in a point to multipoint environment, one tower serving many customers. Um, you can always get better speeds when you're doing point to point where I can go from tower to tower with these big dishes on there with lots of gain and very expensive equipment. Um, so make sure you're really looking in a point to multipoint environment, which is really what you use to deliver um, local loop broadband. And finally, um, it's network speed versus customer speed. So oftentimes they'll say, well, I can do one gig, for example, but that might be the line rate on the system. 30% of that oftentimes you can take right off because it's overhead, it's error correction, it's things like that, and only 700 meg is available to the customer. So you really have to look, is this actually what's being delivered to my customer or is this really the speed that their network is running at including all of these overhead bits. So when you're looking at these, uh, these advertisements and spec sheets, you've got to kind of boil it down to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples with what you can deliver on a broadband basis as well, because oftentimes it, it appears to be su substantially overstated. Oh, it's really super interesting information. So one of the things that um, maybe you can help explain, you know, why does fiber have so much more capacity than fixed wireless? And you, you usually break it down to like, you know, spectrum, um, the constellation and noise environment, but maybe you can explain that a little bit. Yeah, so if you really look at it, you know, in some ways, although we're talking like photons versus electrons, um, you know, there really is a, spec a spectrum that you're operating on a fiber, just like, when you're operating over the airwaves. The problem is when you're RF wireless, you're operating over a set of airwaves that's shared by many, many people. 
um, or many, many providers. And so you're only allocated a small sliver, kind of in that, like what I showed in that diagram previously. If you're on a fiber, you have the entire spectrum yourself. If you do dense wave division multiplexing, you're actually putting your wavelengths, you know, your lambdas at different points along your essentially spectrum on that fiber. If you were to take the spectrum you have on fiber, and they're always figuring out ways to do more all the time. Um, but just for the common equipment today, you've got over 30,000 times more spectrum available on a single fiber than you have in all of the unlicensed bands combined. So it's just a lot more that you have available for total use. You got all the spectrum versus some small part that has a lot of contention with other users. And yeah, also you, from a noise environment, I mean, mm -hmm. there's no foliage, there's no mountains, there's no, you know, fibers, a clear path versus yeah, there's, the and there's really two types of unlicensed wireless. One is kind of a free-for-all, and, you know, that's like Wi-Fi and things like that. There's no um, policing of how you use that spectrum. And then there's some like CBRS where it's GAA, they call it, where there's actually a spectrum uh, assignment methodology, but the reality is if you get 80 megahertz today, somebody else comes in and you might be cut back to 40 megahertz or 20 megahertz. And so it's really difficult to deliver any broadband of any consistency because you might lose some of that spectrum tomorrow if somebody else wants it because it's not yours. You don't own it. It's unlicensed. Yeah, no, it's really frustrating for me in my lake house is you know, when I looked at the FCC maps, it says, oh, it's served by, you know, US Cellular has fixed wireless there, or uh, Hughes or Viasat has satellite, or um, Starlink has low earth, or, you know, and uh, the unfortunate reality is I can't work from the lake house. You know, just, you know, the, what I really have is 200 kilobits from CenturyLink. And, but when someone draws a circle around the, an antenna and tells the FCC that we got this covered, I mean, it's a huge lie. And that's, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit about why you can't just draw circles around antennas when you think about topology and other things. Yeah, they take a very broad brush when they're trying to determine what they're going to report as part of the BDC. That's where the challenge process comes in because they don't take into account terrain and trees and all of those kinds of things that impact wireless signals. Unfortunately, where we have all of our, you know, this unlicensed spectrum I'm talking about up in the millimeter wave, it doesn't go through trees or walls or any of that kind of stuff. It's terrible when it comes to terrain. Even mid-band struggles with um, those kinds of things. But a lot of the wireless providers, you know, take just a very broad brush because they can't go out and specifically analyze each location very easily. Hopefully through the whole challenge process, some of that's going to get resolved. But there's other things like, um, you know, let's say a tree, or they might put up your antenna in the wintertime when there's no leaves on it. In the summertime, the leaves or the tree grows or it's weather related. And there's so many other things that can impact the wireless signal, or you could get a windstorm that misaligns your dish. None of that happens on a fiber system. So just to be clear, for fixed wireless to work, you have to have line of sight, right? You have to be literally be able to see the antenna from wherever you're, CPE device is going to be? Generally, you know, if you're in the low band, you can penetrate objects pretty well. In the mid band, you can do some penetration of objects, but it does attenuate your signal. So if you're getting very far from the antenna, 
you know, you get some attenuation, it's going to make it more difficult. But in the mid band, you can do some penetration. Millimeter wave, you're not going to penetrate anything. So put on your BDAC hat and your, your FCC hat. So, uh, you know, I get cable labs and others, you know, go argue like cable labs did a study saying, hey, we can do 10 Zoom sessions on 25.3. No one needs all this upstream bandwidth. I mean, and so can you talk a little bit about peaking, why you can't just look at average bandwidth and why you need to, I mean, it's kind of like utilities, right? When you have blackouts and brownouts, it's not on the average utility, it's all on the peaking, right? It's mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple things to keep in mind. And I kind of talked about that early on in that initial slide when I was saying that we were going to need one meg by 2005. A lot of the stuff that's going to be running on our network hasn't been invented yet. You know, we're talking about, you know, virtual worlds and, you know, things like that. The, this flat screen video that we're doing here today will look primitive, you know, by the time we get to 2030 because of the kinds of things that we're going to be doing. Um, so you can't base what you're going to deploy on today's technology. In reality, we're building networks for stuff that hasn't been invented yet. But when we build wireless networks, we also have oversubscription. So not only do a lot of the videos, it's variable bitrate. You go to Netflix, for example, in ultra high definition, they recommend 25 meg for one channel. You've got multiple users in a location. It's not to a specific customer. And then on top of it all, you don't design for just that customer. You might have a four to one oversubscription ratio, which means I'm selling four times the capacity than I really have. And if that's the case, only one fourth of your customers could really be using the full capacity at any one time, then the rest are going to get blocked. So, you know, all of that traffic analysis kind of works into it. And that's another reason why you don't have very good performance at times, because when you want to use a network, all of your neighbors are wanting to use the network as well. Yeah, the kids just got out of school, right? It's kind of the same problem mm -hmm. we have with cable. Um, so when I go to, you know, to the different states and to these different counties and the fixed wireless guys get up and they give this compelling talk about, hey, you have to connect people as soon as possible. And the quickest way to do that is stick an antenna up and be able to use fixed wireless. And then, you know, in the future, when they bring fiber, then you'll have a diverse network to protect you against major weather events. So why doesn't that argument work? Well, one thing is that's kind of an expense if you're building your network twice. And like I said, we do a lot of wireless engineering as well. And there can be some instances where if there's existing towers and stuff, maybe you could do a faster deployment with a wireless solution. But the reality is to get the kind of speeds that we need to be able to not only meet today's demand, but in the future, generally there's more towers. And when there's more towers that you need and fiber to those towers, you still have to go through a lot of the permitting process. You got to do environmental impacts. A lot of the things that are long lead times that slow down fiber deployment also slow down wireless deployment just because you have to do a lot of the same things when you're constructing towers. And if it takes a year to get um, you know, national forest permit or something for fiber, it takes the same amount of time for a wireless tower as well. Because not only for the tower, but for um, you know, running the fiber to it. So there could be sometimes it's gonna um, you know, be a little bit faster, but generally nowadays, it's not a dramatic difference. And the other thing you've got to keep in mind is every five to seven years, I've got an enormous investment I need to make, not only at my central electronics, but at my customer premise, if it's a wireless network. So every five to seven years, I have another opportunity for that wireless operator to fail if he can't make that substantial investment 
once you build the fiber network, the investments are very small um, because there's just not a lot of electronics cost. And so you've got a much more sustainable network long-term. So is the takeaway then from your analysis to the states and anybody using the, the $42.45 million billion dollar bead fund is to do it right the first time? Do it right the first time. And I think NTIA and the Infrastructure Act had it right. We should not allow, I would say the NTIA should stay with their current course of action, not allow unlicensed wireless as part of the bead consideration. Let's do it right the first time. This is a once a generation opportunity. We should have uh, a generation type network. Thanks, Larry. Well, I really appreciate it. I always love having you as a guest on Fire for Breakfast. And we really appreciate all the work that you and your team do to really advance our industry. So thanks, Larry. And thanks right. everyone for joining us today and look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We'll be discussing Fiber Connect 2023. Let the disruption begin with the Fiber Broadband Association's chair, JJ Joseph Jones of OnTrack and our Fiber Connect Conference Program Director, Rich Williams. They're gonna outline what to expect at our annual conference in August including keynotes, breakouts, pre-conference workshops, and the special events at the Gaylord in Orlando. So you're not gonna to wanna to miss that. Thanks again, Larry, and we'll see you guys next time.